Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com Spotify. TommyJohn.com Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Catherine of Aragon. Review! With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. And uh, welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts of England from Elswith to Prince Philip. Uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rex Factor Pod. Like us on Facebook, email rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com and sign up for bonus content at patreon.com forward slash Rex Factor. And today we are reviewing Catherine of Aragon, first of the six wives of Henry VIII. We did her biography last time, yeah. so if you want the full story in depth, uh, listen to the previous episode. Uh, today, though, we're going to score her and decide whether or not she has the Rex Factor. But first, we will do a quick recap on her life and queenship. Biography! So, Catherine of Aragon was born on the 16th of December, 1485, the daughter of the acclaimed monarchs who created Spain by their marriage, Isabella of Castile and Ferdinand of Aragon. From four years old, she was betrothed to Prince Arthur, eldest son of King Henry VII of England, but after marrying in great splendour in 1501, she was widowed just months later and left in limbo until 1509, when the newly crowned 17-year-old Henry VIII immediately married her on becoming king. Mm. Uh, Their first decade is very happy. Catherine even acts as regent, overseeing England's defeat of Scotland at Flodden, but her influence wanes in the 1520s. Uh, We've got Cardinal Wolsey as the new power at court. The Spanish alliance fails, and most importantly, from Henry's perspective, they did not have a son, but only a daughter, Mary. So convinced that their marriage was a sin because he'd married his brother's widow, Henry sought an annulment and determined to marry Anne Boleyn. Uh, Catherine, however, resists and confounds Henry, but eventually he breaks from Rome and the papacy, declares their marriage invalid, and marries Anne Boleyn instead. Uh, Catherine is kept in increasingly miserable isolation, unable to see her daughter Mary again, uh, and she dies in 1536 at the age of 50, still holding herself as the rightful Queen of England. And I I think quite right from what I remember last week. Yeah, She had the old uh, letter from the governor in Rome. She did, yes. What are you going to do apart from completely change the rules and make your own church in which case you're never going to win and she knew that and she um, held herself well so next w- time I'm <laughs> <in>. <laughs> I think that's it in a nutshell isn't it that comes it very nicely let's go into it in a little bit more detail for the factors okay battleliness so Catherine did have to deal with some actual battleliness Oh, yeah. Um, And it's the measure of Henry's confidence in her that despite knowing James IV of Scotland might invade when he went to campaign in France, he leaves Catherine as regent uh, with powers of defending and protecting our Kingdom of England to arm and equip soldiers for war and to station, prepare and lead them. When James IV invades England in uh, the summer of 1513, a massive army of about 40,000 men uh, quickly captures the castles of Norham, Ettel and Ford in northern England. Uh, But Catherine of Aragon, of course, is the daughter of a warrior king and warrior queen, Mm. so she very much seems to be in her element uh, facing uh, an invasion. She seizes the property of all Scotsmen in England and then with her council of war devises a strategy. Mm. So the Earl of Surrey will raise the main army to face the Scots from northern England. Mm. Um, in case he is defeated Sir Thomas Lovell will raise a second army in the Midlands Mm. and in the unlikely event of both of those armies being defeated the final line of defence Catherine herself raises an army in the south cool it's an actual game of chess with three lines instead of two Um, in letters to Henry she enthusiastically describes being horribly busy with making standards banners and badges which uh, for her army she emblazons with the arms of both England and Spain 
Oh. So this, but there's no Spanish elements there? No, other okay. than her. On the 8th of September, Catherine musters her troops and started uh, to march north. There aren't any contemporary accounts describing her in armour, which you sometimes see described, mm. um, but she did order a golden headpiece with crown and a helmet specially garnished with jewels, uh, while ordnance records show that guns went northward with the Queen's grace. So probably not a full suit of armour, but she may well have had a fancy helmet with them. That's cool. But isn't the age of Henry VIII what a strange sort of uh, thing to imagine? This, uh, this Spanish uh, b- uh, flag-waving <laughs> Catholic army yeah. marching up. Well, uh, Reports spread across Europe of her courage and leadership. Uh, Peter Marta, who's a contemporary Italian chronicler, reported, Queen Catherine, in imitation of her mother Isabella and imbued by the spirit of her father, made splendid oration to the English captains, told them to be ready to defend their territory, and they should remember that English courage excelled that of all other nations. Fired by these words, the nobles marched against the Scots and defeated them. Usual stuff. Now, it's not entirely accurate, because this is implying that we've got Catherine, you know, addressing the troops at the front line. charge and off they run Mm. Um, she'd only made it as far as Buckingham which is about 300 miles south of where the battle is actually fought in Flodden Um, but she would most likely have made a speech to her own troops in the south of England so it's quite possible that she does make a speech like this yeah and it sounds like she's so enthusiastic by the whole idea like that's something that's done Um, she's probably doing it every day (laughs) yeah she's probably uh, (laughs) practicing it in front of the mirror (laughs) and thinking right here we go She is not required with her army, though, because uh, the Earl of Surrey is victorious in the Battle of Flodden. And indeed, it is a remarkable victory. It's the biggest battle in terms of troop numbers between England and Scotland that was ever fought. Um, And it wipes out an entire generation, almost, of Scottish nobles, including the king himself, James IV. Oh, there you go. He is killed in this battle. Okay, so big. So that's that's great, isn't it? All that mm. uh, a whole generation dead. Lovely. Yes. It was very sad when we were obviously looking at it from a Scottish perspective, but it's an impressive victory. That although she's not obviously leading the troops, but she's mm. overseen it. She's devised the strategy. She's ordered people to go and do it. She's in charge. Yeah. Catherine writes an exultant letter to Henry when uh, soon she hears about it, telling him of the great victory, though she's tactful to attribute it to him. Well, tactful, good. It's under her watch. That's totally her. It's not mm. Henry at all, is it? But she doesn't want to overshadow yeah. what Henry's doing in France. Because she knows he's a horrible, horrible loser. <laughs> yeah. So she uh, gives him the credit. Um, she also apologises for what she felt was the inadequate spoils of war that she sends to him. My husband, for hastiness with Rouge Cross, I could not send you, Grace, the piece of the King of Scots' coat, which John Glynn now brings. In this, your Grace shall see how I kept my promise, sending you for your banners a King's coat. I thought to send himself unto you, but our Englishman's hearts would not suffer it. Now, when she said, I thought to send himself unto you, but our Englishman's hearts would not suffer it, what she means is that she's grumbling that the English lords are too squeamish to let her send the bloodied corpse of James IV in person to Henry VIII. Yeah, I think what she's come up against there is a victory in the north of England as opposed to a Spanish uh, uh, victory. Because here there's no... um, I don't understand. I've won a victory, and yet there's no galleons approaching absolutely laden with gold. All I've got is this bizarre uh, sort of gut sausage, <laughs> <laughs> and they won't even let me send you his corpse. Um, yeah, pretty grim. But, you know, Catherine's often portrayed as the sort of holy, pious, almost meek and mm. goodly Catherine. But no, here she's... we've got her overseeing the defeat of the Scots. Yeah trying to send the body of the Scottish king as a yeah. trophy, and the English lords are going, ooh, that's, that's a bit much, maybe. She's maybe, really good, though, isn't maybe she? Maybe just his coat. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't prove anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, she, yeah, she's just take, really good at Kate take, embodying roles, isn't she? Mm. She the, was the ambassador, well, and she's here taking on the role of king. Yeah. Brilliant. I mean, it's, it's bang up battliness, isn't it? But she does also have what a bit more of what we usually are looking for from the consorts, which is independent action and agency. Particularly, we see this, of course, when she resists Henry's efforts to annul the marriage. Yeah. That is major battliness in the traditional of this mm. series form. And again, it's not just Catherine just being very honest and straightforward and just speaking truth to power. 
it's a tactical battle. As we said, you said she was a diplomat. She was an ambassador. Yeah. She learned how to dissimulate. It's, there's tactics going on here. Indeed, legal advice accounted for about 10 to 15% of her household spending from 1527 to 29. God, they're brave lawyers, aren't they? It must be like being an opposition <laughs> lawyer in Russia today. <laughs> um, and unlike Henry, she seemed to be quite good at listening to her lawyers, as Henry always thinks that he's, he probably knows best. But he can change the rules. Oh yeah. <laughs> okay, he's changed. Doesn't matter, but so it's not legal. It will be. Exactly. They're they're fighting a losing battle if they if she's paying all the money to for someone to work out the rules and he can change them. Well the thing is he doesn't want to change the ministry. He wants to be shown to the whole world the good and right just Christian king who is absolutely correct in his convictions and he assumes at every stage of the process that that is what will be agreed by everybody. Yeah, it's hard to um think like you know get your mind into like the what was henry thinking without also appreciating that enormous level of arrogance mm. um but though to be fair you know kings usually did get divorces so yeah yeah <laughs> um from the beginning though henry and wolsey do seem to have underestimated catherine uh, she operates a very effective network of informants so she's always one step ahead really. So she always knows. Every time they've done something in secret, she finds out about it within mm. 24 hours or so. Uh, she knew about Wolsey's secret tribunal uh, the, f- the following day, and tactically, when Henry does tell her what's actually happening, because initially he doesn't tell her that he's planning to annul the marriage, he thinks he can just get it done and then tell her afterwards. Mm. Um, but she responds by telling Henry her marriage to Arthur had not been consummated, and she asks to receive counsel from abroad. Yeah. Which doesn't seem unreasonable, but Wolsey immediately sees that these are the worst possible points she could have made in terms of the angle that they were taking, i.e. marriage was consummated, let's get it done quickly before Spain finds out. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Wolsey urges Henry that your grace should handle her both gentle and softly so that she doesn't go and speak to her nephew, the King of Spain, Holy Roman Emperor. But she should do that anyway, right? Well, she knows the game, of course. Um, So she has a messenger request permission from Henry to go and visit his sick mother in Spain. Oh, yeah. The old sick mother trick. Oh, yeah. Now, Henry sees this coming a mile off. Catherine has said that she refused permission, but he goes to Henry, thinking maybe Henry will let Uh, him go. Henry sees through that as well. Um, So he plays a double bluff back. He says, of course you can go, but it's very, very risky going by sea. So... Follow this route, go through by Paris, and we'll get you there. Don't worry, of course, off you go, go and see your mother. And then tells Wolsey, who was in Paris at the time, to arrest that man as soon as he gets to Paris. Ah. Catherine, of course, just sends him directly by sea to Spain, so he never goes to Paris. Uh, it, it is that like sword fighting, this. Mm. Yeah. But Henry trying to be a little bit too clever. Mm. He could have just said no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would that that is also an option. Yeah. Uh, so the messenger gets to her nephew, the emperor, the king of Spain. He pledges his support and that of the pope. Round one goes to Catherine. Mm. Everybody now knows what's going on. Uh, so eighteen months later, so this is how much he's mm. delayed matters. The pope uh, in fifteen twenty eight sends cardinal cardinal Campeggio to England. Um, he hoped to convince Catherine to enter a nunnery. So he mm. thought, let's not have a trial. Let's just nip this in the bud. Get her to go to a nunnery, and that sorts it all out. Mm. Uh, but he wanted to keep this secret from Catherine because he wanted to try and get her to show her hand so he knows what she the actually Pope. wants. Uh, well, Cardinal Campeggio, yeah. so the yeah. Pope's, the Pope's uh, emissary, as it were. Um, so he's trying to get Catherine to show her hand. In fact, the opposite occurs. So she already knows that he's got the nunnery plan. So she comes straight out and says, oh, I hear that you've planned to send me into a certain house. Um, and then she declares that she was a woman, a foreigner and friendless and wanted indifferent counsel, i.e neutral someone that she can choose before she will respond to the suggestion yeah she also asked permission for him cardinal campeggio to hear her confession Mm. so henry thinks aha she said she needs to respond she wants to give her confession that's the kind of thing you might be doing if you wanted to settle your worldly affairs and enter a nunnery Mm. so he says yep absolutely indifferent counsel i'd said no before but okay you can have it now give your confession to campeggio nunnery here we come Mm mm-hmm uh, instead, Catherine gives Campeggio permission to break her confidence, i.e. Campeggio can tell the Pope what she says in her confession. And then she insisted that she remained intact and uncorrupted by Arthur and had no interest in becoming a nun. Uh, 
to which Campeggio says, she assured me she would never do so, that she intended to live and die in the estate of matrimony into which God had called her, and that she would always be of that opinion and never change it. She repeated this so many times and so determinately and deliberately that I am convinced she will act accordingly. Mm. And Campeggio admits that he's basically stumped by this. So Catherine had gained the indifferent counsel that Henry had denied her, publicised to the entire world her sacred vow of non-consummation and didn't go to a nunnery. She is playing mm. him like a fiddle. Round two to Catherine. Mm. Uh, Henry still remains confident of victory, though, because the Pope had effectively accepted his arguments that the original papal dispensation for him and Catherine to marry had been flawed because it was a bit ambiguous in its language. So it stated, this marriage had perhaps been consummated. So the argument is that perhaps means that it's not quite sure whether it was or not. And it might be that if it had definitely been consummated, the dispensation might not have applied. However, Catherine undid this argument by producing a papal brief which had been sent to her mother with slightly different wording, which stated categorically that the marriage had been consummated. Had? Why is she trying to prove that she had had sex with Arthur. The point is that there was this original document from the papacy which said, even if they had slept together, the dispensation is fine. You can definitely marry even if they have consummated the marriage. Mm. But Catherine says, well, first we didn't consummate it, but even if we did, see? He sent this letter which said it's fine. Exactly. Both both sides of that argument are completely blocked. Um, And it felt rather too timely and too on the nose to be legitimate from Henry and Wolsey's perspective. Yeah, I mean, it is absolutely the perfect rebuttal, isn't it? Mm. Henry forces Catherine to write to the emperor asking for uh, the original copy to be sent to him to inspect it. To Henry? Mm. Without going missing. Well, exactly. So Catherine arranges, as well as the letter which she has to write, she will also have a verbal message sent to accompany the letter, which will be given to the emperor to say, don't do it. He'll destroy the letter. Keep it safe. Don't give it to Henry. But we've got the same problem she has before because Henry obviously is going to be suspicious of Catherine trying to get messages to the emperor. Yeah, She implies that she doesn't trust her English chaplain, a chap called Thomas Abel. Um, So she insists on sending a Spanish servant with him. And the Spanish servant, of course, will have the oral message. The Spaniard is detained along the way by English agents, but they don't suspect her chaplain because he's English and the right sort of chap. But in fact, he is able to arrive early he takes the verbal message as well as the actual letter. Oh, so he was, the, he, was the, he was loyal. And he's actually betrays Henry, serves Catherine, and tells the emperor everything he needs to know. So when Henry's commissioners arrive after him, Abel continues the act. He pretends to be very helpful, offers to help them analyse the original document, but ensures that they're allowed to see it, but not keep it. Huh. Blimey. God, it's hard work to just keep up. Mm, but round three, Catherine. Yeah, right, yeah. She's winning on points. So the case now progresses to the Legatine Court, which is attended by all the great and the good of uh, the English court, as well as uh, as well as people in the general public. They get to come in and watch yeah. as well. When Catherine's called to testify on the first day, uh, she left her dice. Uh, dice, dice, dice. Dice. Dice, yeah. 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 Left her die, so the place where you stand and give your testimony. Yeah. And instead walks over to Henry, kneels down at his feet, despite him twice trying to raise her back up again <laughs> onto her feet. Walks. And then makes her plea, loud enough, obviously, for everybody to hear. Sir, I beseech you for all the love that has been between us, and for the love of God, let me have justice. Take of me some pity and compassion, for I am a poor woman and a stranger born out of your dominion. I have here no assured friends, and much less impartial counsel. I flee to you as the head of justice within this realm. Alas, sir, wherein have I offended you, or what occasion of displeasure have I deserved? I have been to you a true, humble, and obedient wife, ever conformable to your will and pleasure, that never said or did anything to the contrary thereof. Uh, She goes on to swear that she had been a a true maid without touch of man on marrying Henry, and that she would leave it to his conscience to judge whether she was so when he found her. Uh, She then beseeches him for permission to write directly to the Pope to defend her honour and conscience, uh, a request which Henry has obviously repeatedly denied. Mm -hmm. But with this passioned emotional speech, everybody's watching, and as we've seen previously, you know, if you're able to get in his face... And everyone see it. ...and put emotional pressure on him. He struggles a bit. So, yeah. 
he agrees to her request. Oh, good for her. Oh, man, she's, she invented PR then before anyone else. Mm, so Catherine then performs a low curtsy and walks straight out of court. Oh, mic drop. Henry had the, caller, uh, the crier call after her. Catherine, Queen of England, come into the court. But she doesn't turn back. Marches straight out. She's done with the court. She's queen. Mm. As uh, David Snarky noted, it was Catherine's final and most effective coup against the great matter. She had knelt, but she had fought and won. Mm. Now, in the 1530s, Henry tried to intimidate her into submission, giving up, basically, on the legal (laughs) (laughs) nonsense. Uh, But again, Catherine was not one to scare easily. So in 1531, he sent a delegation of 30 privy councillors, led by the Dukes of Norfolk and Suffolk, as well as lawyers and bishops and all sorts. Uh, They arrive at her uh, quarters at night, so as to best intimidate her, probably just when she's about to go to bed, uh, trying to catch her out. But instead, she easily rebuts every argument uh, put to her uh, before looking around the room and mocking, mockingly declaring herself astonished to see so many mighty figures around her at such an hour. Mm. And uh, eventually they just uh, cut their losses and head home, having achieved absolutely nothing. Yeah. Well, it sounds like they didn't really have a plan beyond get there and work it out when we were there. The Duke of Norfolk later remarks to Catherine, it's wonderful to see her courage. Nothing seems to frighten her. (laughs) And indeed, there is a lot to be frightened about, because her refusal to swear to the act of supremacy, which is Henry being the head of the English church, breaking from Rome, and the act of succession, which basically declares her daughter Mary illegitimate. Is it? Well, this is, that's, hang on, that's escalated, isn't it? Yes, this is now 1534. The, these acts have to be sworn to by everybody, or at least everybody in significance, or else you'll be charged with treason. And Thomas More and Bishop Fisher refused to swear to them and were executed in 1535. Yeah, it's a very, it's do you want to keep your head question. Hmm. And Catherine is refusing to tick yes in that box. Who's yeah. to say that Catherine won't face the same fate? And she's ready to die if she needs to. So she tells Com- uh, Cromwell's commissioners in 1534, where they come to try and get her to agree, if any one of you has a commission to execute this penalty upon me, I am ready. I ask only that I be allowed to die in the sight of the people. Uh, even the Pope, when he did finally declare in Catherine's favour um, that the marriage was valid in 1534, feared for her fate mm. in doing so. Um, he said, I'm afraid that I've committed a great sin the Queen may suffer death by it. Mm-hmm. Equally, he might have been somewhat uh, relieved. Uh, Catherine had grown rather frustrated at his intransigence mm. uh, and once vowed that if he failed to administer justice, he would never escape her, that even from the bottom of hell, she would shout so loudly that God could not fail to hear her <laughs> complaints. She is the boss. Thomas Cromwell noted uh, of uh, saying, if not for her sex, she could have defied all the heroes of history. While Henry himself, when he refused permission for Catherine to visit Mary in 1535, when Mary was very seriously ill, uh, said, The Lady Catherine is a proud, stubborn woman of high courage. If she took it into her head to take her daughter's part, she could quite easily take to the field, muster a great army, and wage against me a war as fierce as any her mother, Isabella, ever waged in Spain. I don't doubt it. I think that's, mm. that's most on the money he's been for a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Gosh. Have we got any against? Well, I, I mean, I guess we do ultimately have to acknowledge that she does not vanquish all who stand before her. Um, as queen, she essentially continued to be the Spanish ambassador, walking that tricky tightrope between loyalty to her father and husband. Uh, notably, she helps bring about alliances with Spain in 1513 and 1522. Um, but the limits of her diplomatic influence are shown when ultimately those Spanish alliances came to nothing, particularly in 1525 when the Spanish betrayed England. Having captured the King of France, they then just decided to ally with Spain. That ended Henry's continental ambitions. It ended Catherine's preeminence at court. Similarly, in the divorce and the King's Great Matter, whilst her nephew obviously puts pressure on Henry and he's worried about him, she never is really able to get enough support either from him or from the Pope to actually really make a difference. It delays things. It makes Henry quite worried. I don't think that's her fault, though. Like, no, but it's it's the limit of her influence, I guess. When mm. we're thinking about, wow, she was the ambassador and she made these alliances and did all of this, but actually, when push came to shove, when she really needed someone to come through for her, she wasn't quite able to. And also, I mean, I guess you know what we just heard that quote from Henry. You could say there was another level to go to. Chapuy, the Spanish ambassador in the 1530s, was increasingly belligerent, believing there could be a popular revolt in her favour if. Um, the Emperor, the King of Spain, did make war on England. England fear a Spanish invasion. Norfolk asked Chapuy, will he make war on us? Charles did tell his brother in 1530 to avoid 
uh, fighting Germany or in Germany for fear that they might have to go and Charles. fight England. Charles V of Spain, right. Holy Roman Emperor. Um, and we will recall this has happened before. Isabella of France, when she was dissatisfied with Edward II, she mm. goes to her brother, the mm. King of uh, France, gets an army, comes back, kicks her husband off the throne, puts her child there instead. But Henry will be aware of that, and that's why he's playing so hard. Well, to Henry's aware of it. it. Henry's worried about it, but Catherine is never willing to advocate such steps. When Chapuis sort of puts it to her, she never wants to go down that road. Which is admirable, of course, from a subjectivity perspective and a, you know, yeah. just general human life perspective. But I guess if we're looking at Bacchanese, you could say, well, if there was another potential Isabella of France in the making, if there was another person who could have overthrown yeah. the king, she is the aunt of the most powerful monarch in Europe. She does have a legitimate daughter. There is a lot of popular dissatisfaction with Henry at this time. It's not ludicrous to say it could have been considered. But she ju- she chose the um uh she chose a different path, and blimey did she succeed! I mean, she died queen. Well, she considered herself queen, but legally she wasn't. Her, you know, her marriage is annulled. Her daughter is declared illegitimate, and her final years, those last three years, when she definitely isn't queen, she's reduced to increasingly small battles. So, locking herself in a chamber to stop the Duke of Suffolk sending her to a manor house with a reputation for sort of pestilence around it you know it's it's quite a fall from but, where she was before when she was yeah. defeating the scots she's now locked in her bedroom refusing to move house i think that just shows defiance to the last every mm. single po- po- at point that she can resist she does and she chose that route like her her argument was based on the fact that she was legitimate queen of england mm. so the, that sort of cut off some of those other routes mm. And 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 she yeah she was up against Henry VIII. If we're looking at um, this series, mm. I can't think of a single person yet who's put up uh, better battliness in the sense that we're considering it in this series. Mm. And she has that actual battle where she just is what Henry would have done at the time. Yeah, I, I can't see anything other than the ten. Oh, it's a big the biggie. Yeah. I mean, I guess the argument is you know the the Isabella comparison, that there was a queen that did get an army and overthrow her husband. You could say that's bigger battliness. I don't think she could. As soon as she's... Mm. That she's where she is. Where, yeah. The argument she's made. Yeah. And still right to the end with that letter and everything. That's, that's battliness as we, as we consider it in this. Mm. It's brilliant. I'm going to mark her down a half mark just for the fact that I feel like there maybe just was another a little place she could have gone. There aren't that many consorts where you think that that's really in the realms. And I definitely do take the point about the, it defeats her argument. Yeah. But equally, I think it would have been a bit more battly if she had thought, well, okay, if he's going to break that rule, then, you know. I think she's like a responsible uh, response to <laughs> responsible someone who adult keeps in the room. escalating. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but she never, she never escalates over him. She just con- continues being the... No, it's it, Henry. You're just being crazy. You know I'm the queen. No, this is all fine. Oh, you know I'm the queen. You know I'm the queen right till the end, forcing him to do this absolutely crackers stuff that makes him look silly, which is probably the mildest thing anyone's ever said about Henry VIII. Yeah, you're looking very silly. <laughs> so it's a ten from you, uh, a nine and a half from me. So nineteen and a half for battliness. Scandal. Now, we might not expect much here, given Catherine's virtuous reputation, but we do have a couple of things just to pick over. Uh, The first is her relationship with one of her closest advisors following Arthur's death, which was her confessor, Fray Diego. Uh, So he was a young, charming and uh, attractive friar, um, and he very much is sort of one of the only ones who's fighting her corner when she's, you know, quite young, quite alone at Henry VII's court. Uh, the Spanish ambassador, Fuenzalida, thought that he had undue influence over Catherine, even suggesting the relationship could be inappropriate. Is he just Is he just a busybody, though? Maybe just a bit of a busybody. Maybe she's got a bit of a sort of girlish yeah. crush on him as a sort of older, sophisticated man, which there's no one else there, but no evidence of anything sexual. But, you know, there's at least someone said something. Poor old Catherine. <laughs> Now, the really juicy question, though, is whether she consummated her marriage to Arthur. Didn't matter either way, she had the letter. Well, that's from a kind of dispensation yeah. sense, you could say it doesn't matter because she got that letter. But she repeatedly stated, including in confession, 
which she asked to be sent to the Pope, that she only shared his bed for seven nights and ended the marriage a virgin. And obviously to have slept with her lawful husband would not be scandalous. But to lie about it under legal and religious oath in peril of her mortal soul would be scandalous. Now, after servants and friends, many of them are brought to testify before the legatine court after she's done her mic drop, uh, and many people from the time do seem to believe it had been consummated. Uh, most notoriously, Anthony Willoughby, who was uh, one of Arthur's uh, body servants, recalled seeing Arthur emerge from his room the morning after the wedding. Willoughby, bring me a cup of ale, for I have this night been in the midst of Spain, which is a hot region, and that region maketh me so dry, and if thou hadst been under that hot climate, thou wouldst have been drier than I. Masters, it is good pastime to have a wife." It's just a silly boy, though, isn't he? Well, that's the thing. Is it a tasteless boast? Uh, or is it a young man maybe overcompensating? Yeah, both. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but it's still, you know, that it's strongly implied, therefore, Arthur's saying, I, I did it. Yeah, but also, uh, that that uh, that evidence would have been paid for. Well, maybe. But equally, you know, they're all there legally i mean it is assumed at the time the herald i think the herald states that you know they they consummated the marriage and as i say the dispensation the english version does originally say they consummated the marriage Mm. it's only when isabella complains that they insert the word perhaps into it so there certainly was an assumption at the time Mm. the spanish certainly thought it was a young man overcompensating though but they also do their sort of own research and they try and get people from the time on the spanish side to come and Mm testify in Spain. Uh, so the night after the wedding, one witness claimed Catherine had pointed at a young servant boy and said, I wish my husband, the prince, was as strong as that lad, because I fear he will never be able to have relations with me. I, Arthur. Because he's sickly. Man up to it, yeah. Uh, Wanda Gamara, who was a boy in Catherine's service, recalled an atmosphere of disappointment the following day. Prince Arthur got up very early, which surprised everyone a lot. Francisca de Cacheres, who was in charge of dressing and undressing the Queen, and whom she liked and confided in a lot, was looking sad and telling the other ladies that nothing had passed between Prince Arthur and his wife, which surprised everyone and made them laugh at him. Well, it's a pressure, isn't there? And the nephew of Catherine's doctor recalled his uncle's shock at Arthur's physical condition. He said his limbs were so weak that he had never seen a man whose legs and other bits of his body were so thin. He often said that the prince had been denied the strength necessary to know a woman. There's nothing wrong with skinny limbs. <laughs> and I have two children. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you wonder whether the Spanish is just going to the other extremity. Are they talking about his extremities? Well, I, I mean, I guess that they're talking about the utility of his extremities, at least. I guess it's whether, what do you think is the truth? I mean, I guess the, guess the interesting thing is that what we've seen from this is that Catherine's a much more political and nuanced figure than her sort of saintly, wronged woman reputation of tradition. She is well-practiced in the arts of dissimulation and that sort of thing. You know, might she have bent the truth a little bit? Does mm. Catherine find a way to word a denial that's technically true but not entirely to the spirit of the truth or do you think she just wouldn't have i just don't think so i mean she's very um she's very religious i just think i think we're uh, we're giving it too much credence one interesting thing apparently she planned with shapwee that uh when she does die she will make a deathbed confession um asserting again that she didn't consummate the Mm. marriage Mm. but when she was on her deathbed doctor forgot to remind her she forgot to say shapwee wasn't there just a little bit interesting. You think, oh, it's interesting that they had planned this, and then, you know, she was writing letters and stuff. So it's not like she was in- unconscious the entire time. Was that evidence that when push came to shove, she didn't want her last words to God to be a, a lie? I mean, in fairness to her, she might just have been distracted with the whole dying mind, thing yeah. rather than worrying about the politics of that. Maybe she felt like it didn't matter anymore by that point. Yeah, true. And she, what mattered was was resistance to the end which she did Mm. yeah but you know if you completely rule out the sense that she might have lied and rule out the uh any funny business with the friar then uh you don't really but really have any scandal i mean that's fine you know don't have to find scandal but yeah i'm happy with zero i think she'd be happy with zero to be honest well yes i think she'd be quite appalled if we were giving a (laughs) Scott, I, I, it's interesting. I can imagine now, having spent more time with her, I can imagine a bit of bending of the truth. Yeah, because of a that. A bit of careful that denial. That diplomacy that she's know. used to, yeah. But equally, 
It's the piety that it, it clashes with. Mm. And if he was that ill... Mm. Well, he wasn't that ill when they married, at least. Uh, you know, it's certainly no suggestion of people saying, oh, crikey, this guy's going to be dead in a week. they talk about oh, his, his funny um, skinny arms and having the ability to physically do it. Well, that's what the Spanish doctors recall. Yeah. It's an interesting one. I think we have to decide one way or the other, and I think if I had to decide, I'd probably say they didn't. I'd probably say they didn't. What pressure, though? They probably just need to go a lot of pressure. on holiday and have a, have a sangria. In Ludlow. In Ludlow, let's see what happens. <laughs> Darling, I'm going to take you away from these marchalands. I'll take you to somewhere called Norfolk. <laughs> have you heard of Norfolk? <laughs> we will drink mead. So we are saying that they didn't consummate the marriage, and consequently then, that is a zero for scandal. I'm happy with that. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Subjectivity. Now, the early part of Henry VIII's reign is this very sort of fascinating bridge from medieval to early modern. And it's during this decade of relative stability that Catherine was in many ways the ideal medieval Mm. consort. So she started programmes of poor relief, uh, interceded with Henry for pardons after the 1517 evil May Day riots when foreign-owned homes were looted. Mm. Uh, Armsgiving was such a popular part of her public role that Henry banned her from doing so for Maundy in 1535 uh, because the arms she had been accustomed to give have attracted the love of the people. Uh, indeed, her popularity concerns Henry during the divorce. Uh, on her entry to the legatine court in 1528, Catherine was warmly greeted by immense crowds of people who publicly wished her victory over her enemies. Oh. Mm. I mean, I guess we're being uh, charitable to their treasonousness. That's maybe Anne rather than Henry. But still, that, still. Mm. that would Henry count as uh, Henry's ambassador in Paris reported that the Queen was as beloved as if she had been of the royal blood. Mm. Which, well, the English royal blood. Oh. Uh, in contrast, Anne Boleyn is heckled, targeted by mob attacks. Um, and Catherine has her support amongst the uh, high and mighty as well. As I said, obviously Fisher and Moore ultimately give their lives rather than take the oaths of supremacy uh, and succession. Reginald Pole, who is Henry's Plantagenet cousin, turns down the Archbishopric of York because of his support for Catherine. Uh, and Henry's mentor, Lord Mountjoy, asked to be discharged from his post as a chamberlain of the Queen's household when he eventually just said, I just can't be asked to keep betraying. Really? and the ladies anymore get someone else to do this. Wow. As the first female ambassador in European history, she was a significant uh, player on the European stage, spent hours encoding letters in cipher uh, as ambassador, wrote to her father how she was able to make people underestimate her. They fancy that I have no more in me than what appears outwardly, and that I shall not be able to fathom his designs. I dissimulate. <laughs> Uh, so yeah she enjoys her verbal sparring matches with Henry VII she wrote to her father that I spoke so well I should rejoice to give an account of it yeah she's loving life at that point isn't she Uh, she advised against a French marriage for the Queen of Castile uh, because this would damage Anglo-Spanish relations and she even manages to bait Henry VII with the possibility of him marrying um, her sister Juana who becomes the Queen of Castile after Isabella's death ah. uh, Ferdinand praises her Ferdinand her father praises her work as ambassador saying she was virtuous and prudent in her handling of Henry VII and that he would treat her words as gospel uh, the high point of her queenship though was in 1513 when as we mentioned earlier she uh, became regent but it wasn't just orchestrating the English response to the invasion of Scotland she also at the same time had to raise money and troops for Henry's French campaign mm. and she also has to reprimand the Archbishop of Canterbury when he rekindles a jurisdictional dispute with the Bishop of Winchester, thinking that he can take advantage of Henry not being in the country. Oh, well, I mean, come on. <laughs> as soon as she starts bashing archbishops about, 
Brilliant. But she also had to deal with a not particularly helpful gift from Henry in the form of the Duke of Longueville, uh, who was taken prisoner in the Battle of the Spurs in France. Mm. So Henry's very proud uh, of his catch. And he He's just caught him. a duke and yeah. she's busy. She's got, Henry, I've got stuff on my hands here. The Archbishop of Canterbury is playing up. 40,000 Scots have just invaded I've the north. I've got three lines of defence and of the day job. You sent me a duke over. I hope, I hope you're enjoying your holiday, mate. Uh, Henry wants him on display in the royal household. Catherine's not so impressed as she writes to Wolsey. It is thought to me and my council that it should be better the said Duke be as soon as he comes conveyed to the tower, especially the Scots being so busy as they now be, and I looking for my departing every hour, it should be a great encumbrance to me to have this prisoner here. She is doing real stuff, and mm. Henry is thinking he's... Uh, Manny, or what was his name? Yeah, Edward the Third. Yeah, or Henry, oh, yeah, and Henry V. He's living he, out his. He, I, it's almost like he wants this French duke to be put in a Northumberland castle to escape and start a small rebellion. <laughs> I can put down later because it's more of the narrative that I enjoy so much. And you know, it's a very successful regency. Now, while re- female regencies are common in the Iberian world, and we see it in France quite a lot as well, the English are still kind of quite stung from when Margaret of Anjou were tried to get the regency Henry VI's illness in 1450s. So Catherine's uh, success here really overturns that negativity. Oh, good. She's a successful female regent, and indeed it enhances her reputation across Europe as well. Oh, yeah, and everyone liked her at the court later, Mm. yeah. Mm. Catherine also, she has traditionally a love of learning. She's a patron of humanist scholars, including Richard Pace, John Leland, and uh, Sir Thomas Wyatt. Uh, She's also friends with Sir Thomas More and Erasmus. Really? Uh, and promotes humanist pedagogy through funding schools at Oxbridge and endowing chairs such as Christ's College and St John's College in Cambridge. Oh, this is more like it. Uh, but her most significant educational patronage came in preparation for schooling Mary. But on discovering that there are no works for educating a future Queen Regnant, um, which is what Catherine is raising Mary to be, she is ra- raising Mary to be. A queen. And that, that hasn't happened yet, has it? Hasn't happened yet in England, um, and thus there aren't actually any educational works for this eventuality. Mm. So she commissions a noted Spanish humanist scholar, Juan Louis Vive, to fill the gap, which he does in 1523 with the institution of a Christian woman and then expands on it uh, in on a plan of study for children. So it's not a fully uh, revolutionary feminist text, so he still very much defines women's primary goals as virtue, domesticity, chastity, and subservience to men. Mm. But it contains a reading list geared toward, uh, geared towards governance, so... Cicero, Seneca, Plutarch, Plato, as well as a bit of more wow. Erasmus. And it does significantly assert that women do deserve to receive an education equal to men. Yeah, I mean, you have to plant the seed to mm. get a tree. But it's proper subjectivity stuff that we haven't seen the like of. When did we last have someone who did like, really good stuff that wasn't just paying for a, a nunnery or something? I get, well, we haven't, to be fair, we haven't really had really good stuff like paying for a nunnery for some time. I guess because we've had the Wars of the Roses, it's been quite yeah. unstable. And she's a proper queen. She does represent stability across the board, doesn't she? That she's mm. she's the daughter of European rock star royalty. Yeah. She's here doing all this good stuff. Mm. You know, that whole argument about start not starting a war. Yeah. Just backs up this good mm. subjectivity. If you could have made her a queen regular instead of Henry... <laughs> Oh, I mean, if Henry were more... This is the, actually the biggest failure is in the Spanish mucking up Henry's European ambitions. If he were yeah. out of the picture more mm. and probably got a knock on the head or something... <laughs> Catherine uh, Regent for Mary. For Mary. Mm. She'd have set it right up. Mm. Wouldn't have put up with any plots against her. Mm. Catholic, um, would have had the full support of the Spanish. Mm. Ruddy Ferdinando, whatever his name is. Ferdinand and Charles. It's Charles later, yeah. can't you? Yeah. It's brilliant, though. Like, What else do we ask in subjectivity? Um, I do have a couple of uh, points of criticism for mm. her, though. Um, although Mary's education is well provided for, Catherine arguably goes a bit too far later on by also basically preparing for Mary's death. So we praise Catherine's bravery in facing the potential of a martyr's death when she refuses to swear the oaths of supremacy and succession. Mm. But she's also encouraging Mary to face the same fate. So Catherine tells her Shapway in 1533, This next Parliament, I am told, is to decide whether my daughter and I are to suffer martyrdom, which I hope to God will be for her and me a meritorious act, as we shall suffer for the sake of truth, trusting that even if the whole world abandons us, we shall not lose the joy and pleasures of the other. 
Well, I mean, she's got to, if that is a realistic possibility, she's got to prepare her, hasn't she? 1534, Shapwe basically tells Catherine she's pushing Mary too far and that it's enough for Mary to defend her status and her beliefs without needing to actually actively provoke Henry. So it almost feels like Catherine's not just saying, yeah, I've got to make sure Mary's ready. She's almost drawing Mary into her own sort of... She's almost decided, I'm going to be a martyr. I'm not going to sign this, and he can cut my head off, and that's absolutely fine, and he can cut my daughter's head off as well. And is a bit more like, maybe let's try and have him not cut off your daughter's head. But I suppose, at this point, he's not cut off any Queen's head. He hasn't, but he has cut off Thomas More's head and mm. Bishop Fisher's head. But it's a, it is a leap to cut off the Spanish... Well, no, he's his niece now, but still. But... Uh, and he has no relation to her beyond marriage. And if she draws in to this argument the daughter as well... Mm. He's definitely not going to cut his daughter's head off. Well, you assume, but equally, can you definitely assume? I suppose then, yeah. But she's she's close close to fundamentalist <laughs> Catholicism, isn't <laughs> yeah. she? She would. I mean, there was it, martyrdom was a was oh, less yes. odd than yeah. it is now. Yes, um, but even so, one might argue that's fine for her to do that. But maybe she should have been trying not to Kill draw her, her daughter. daughter in quite as. Now, the other thing, which might seem a bit of a harsh criticism, but we do have to consider the cost of her resistance to Henry. So, you know, it's six long years from Henry starting off what he thought would be a quick annulment (laughs) to actually divorcing Catherine or annulling the marriage. And in these six years, he basically is now descended into tyranny. Moore and Fisher have been executed in a near millennia association with Rome broken. The dissolution of the monasteries is just on the horizon. All of Henry's actions, of course, it's on him. But if Catherine had just agreed to go into a nunnery in 1528, none of that needed to have happened. Mary could have stayed legitimate because if Catherine effectively marries God, mm. that meant that her that marriage didn't have to be invalid. So they didn't have to be annulled. Catherine could have just gone into the nunnery. Mary's still legitimate. And, you know, she's then able to dedicate herself to her devotions, but also be treated with honour. Henry is able to get a male heir, or at least try to get a male heir, which, you know, is considered very important by contemporaries. Mm-hmm. David Starkey pointed out, you know, when she ends up at Kimbolton Castle in her final years, she basically never leaves her room except to go to Mass, just dedicates herself to her devotions. It's not really that different from what she would have been doing in a nunnery anyway. No, but she had no way of knowing that he was going to start the Church of England. No, but equally... She's stubborn, which we've obviously praised her for, but what was she ultimately hoping to get from it? Because realistically, the marriage is dead, even if she wins preventing Henry from being able to put a legal document in place that says it's dead. He's not going to visit her bed anymore. They're not going to be together as man and wife anymore. He's He wants out. Mm. And all previous English kings would probably have expected to have been able to get that quite easily. It's a unusual set of circumstances which means it doesn't happen so even though it's absolutely crazy town that henry ends up going to it wasn't so ridiculous that he thought he'd be able to get what he wanted in the first place Mm. and catherine's the one that stops it she's the one that fights it she's not going to get anything good out of it Mm. she's just refusing to yield her position which is admirable in many ways but it does come at a cost of lives at the reformation and indeed when she is almost on her deathbed, she does have doubts. As she tells Shapley, she basically says, you know, is this on me? Are all these people that have died of all this trouble, is it for me? Is it my fault? And Shapley says, no, absolutely not. You, you can't be, uh, be criticised. But as David Starkey concluded, the awful truth remains that the Reformation and all it entailed was her work as much as Henry's and Anne's. The old two to tango mm. argument. Yeah, I just, I just feel like it's because Henry has discovered that you can steal in Monopoly. Yeah. And he can completely upset the game. She was playing with these rules and played it played a blinder. When you've got someone who's gonna cheat hmm. that's why all the that's why the Reformation happened, because <laughs> he tore up the rule book and people died. She was three 0 up in football and he just picks the ball up and Yeah. Yeah, and she's then to blame for the creation of rugby. Because he's, she's got Harland as a striker. <laughs> but 
I guess the the counter argument is what's she fighting for? Just the principle. Yeah. She's she's They could have had a could have she's offered a compromise, a bit late perhaps, but she's offered this compromise that says, Look, okay, Mary can still be legitimate, that's all fine, you can go to a nunnery, you like that sort of thing, but the <laughs> king would really like to marry someone else and try and get a son. She just doesn't want to yield her position, which is really impressive on a personal level. But if you're talking subjectivity, the good of the kingdom, etc., what is she ultimately trying to gain by stopping him? It's because he loses and all these other means that he ends up going to that extent. Going nuclear. He just wants... All he wants is to get rid of her. <laughs> but, you know, he, he wants to remarry. That's what he wants. He doesn't necessarily want to do all this other stuff. Or if we reduce it to a more human interaction, <laughs> I guess. No, but on a genuine sort of yeah. forget of them as king and queens... Henry doesn't love her anymore and he doesn't want to yeah. be in the marriage anymore. Yeah. She won't let him live his life. She's, <laughs> his I mean, life. And, and it's rare for me to <laughs> take a religious the sanctity <laughs> of God and marriage yeah, exactly. as an institution. <laughs> but that is her thinking, isn't it? That's why. Yeah, that yeah, is, yeah. That, that's what I think it boils down to is this <laughs> fundamentalism where she won't bend those rules. And I think she probably would on a human level but wouldn't on a religious one. Hmm. I am your wife. Catherine, I'm going to kill all these people. I, I hear you, Henry, and I hope you're not crazy enough to do that, but I am your wife. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't think this is a, like, a massive take loads of points off a thing, but equally, it's, it is worth thinking about that actually, what is the yeah, cost? Yeah, can't of, have a perfect score. What's the cost of it, all of this, and actually, what is she trying to achieve? And even though what Henry does is unreasonable, maybe his expectations that he will get what he wants in this instance isn't actually so unreasonable it feels unreasonable because of what he does to get it yeah 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 but in 1527 yeah, yeah see it's not that outlandish okay so from a score point of view she's got that excellent stuff for the public We've got her very successful regency oh yeah i mean that's a proper subjectivity would, would you like to to be in a country that she actually controls <laughs> yeah <laughs> Patronage, education, the first sort of proper thing actually for a female ruler, an educational set. I think it's got to be really, really good. It's but good. then it's hard to say it's really good. And I'm not going to doubt the um, impact of turning the world on its head. And I think Henry does need to take the bulk of the criticism yeah. for turning the world on its head. But, but just that yeah. you know, she's not completely perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, yeah. A, there's a cost of being so... Strict, to it, yeah. strict and stubborn. Eight. Yeah, I was thinking eight. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's a shame. Like if if um, if Henry hadn't been hadn't turned against in the way that she did, she would probably have ended up being even yeah even higher. Or if it like as it also if she'd gone to the nunnery, I think that's the thing. Actually, if she'd said, you know, we do need a son and heir for England for the good of the country, I will go to another. Oh, that's an interesting angle. Yeah, for the good of the country. Then that would probably be a ten. Yeah. So, wow, she did all of this and then went to a nunnery. Yeah, that's it. I think that's right. Mm. So, an eight from you, an eight from me. Sixteen. Subjectivity. Longevity. Catherine is Queen Consort of England from the 11th of June, 1509, when she married Henry VIII, to the 23rd of May, 1533, when uh, Thomas Cranmer adjudged that, in fact, she hadn't married (laughs) Henry VIII. Uh, So, that makes 23.92 years, which gives her a score of 15 out of 20, which is the 14th best overall. Well, that's surprisingly low, isn't it? For uh, 20 years? Well, do well, you think later on we're going to have, you know, like oh, the yeah. Georgians and the Windsors yeah, yeah, yeah. who are there forever and ever. Um, it's also, by quite some distance, the best longevity for any of the six wives. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In fact, Catherine is queen consort for longer than the other five combined. Wow. But double more than the other five combined. Wow. So if you add all the other five up and times it by two, that's still less than Catherine. Gosh. Mm. I mean, I guess in fairness to Anne Boleyn, as we see, Anne is sort of in that relationship with Henry for about ten years before she actually gets to marry him. Really? But we're talking years? Yeah, actually ten years, including the time as queen at the end of it. So actually, even though Anne's queenship isn't very long, she is there for a long time. So those are the two who are in a big part of Henry's Henry's partner for a long time. But still, that is a... That is ages. Mm. I thought he would have got bored way before that. Well, because she is, as we see next time, she is withholding. Yeah, but still. <laughs> anyway, for Catherine, uh, you know, f- 15 out of 20 is a good score. Mm. Dynasty. 
not the program. Catherine has one surviving child by Henry VIII, which is the future uh, Mary I, which gives her a score of 7.5, so joint 33rd overall. She was never going to do well in that. No, indeed. So, I mean, that's obviously as good as it will get for a six wife, uh, for one of the six wives. Um, of course, that only tells part of the story. Catherine endured six or seven pregnancies in the space of ten years, something she poignantly recalled to Henry at the Legatine Court. By me, ye have had diverse children, although it hath pleased God to call them out of this world, which hath been no default in me. So, other than Mary, the only child to survive childbirth, or to any significant extent to survive childbirth, was a Prince Henry in 1511, who lived for 50 days. Now, we don't know exactly why Henry and Catherine had such misfortune here, um, obviously assuming that we discount Henry's argument that it was a sin in the eyes of God. Some have suggested Catherine might have suffered from anorexia nervosa. She tended not to eat properly when she stressed, which could have affected her fertility. Um, Sometimes it's suggested whether Henry had syphilis, but that doesn't really stand up to scrutiny. A more recent theory that's got a bit more in it, perhaps, is that Henry could have carried the rare Kell antigen in his blood. Um, so this is basically where there's mixing of antibodies across the placenta can cause second pregnancies onwards in a relationship to result in late-term miscarriage, stillbirth, or rapid neonatal death. So basically, wow. once the blood's transferred after that first pregnancy, the mother, her blood or the pathogens or whatever, will see it as a uh, yeah. antibody-type thing will gosh attack it so this bears out with most of his children so elizabeth by anne is the first pregnancy and then they have a succession of unsuccessful pregnancies uh jane seymour um edward the sixth is the first child yeah obviously she dies and he does have that um illegitimate son that he acknowledges henry fitzroy which is the first child by the mistress elizabeth brown the only exception to that is mary who is the fifth child of henry and catherine but if Mary had perhaps inherited the Kell positive gene from Henry, yeah. she would have been protected from the effects. How interesting. Uh, anyway, that uh, is a dynasty score of seven and a half for Catherine, which means overall she gets a score of 58. What's that? Where does that put her? That puts her in eighth position what? overall. Well, the thing is, she's not. she's got a zero for scandal and seven and a half for dynasty. So even though she's got near 20 for battleliness, very good subjectivity, very good longevity, you really, to be at the top, like Eleanor Isabella, you do have to score in every factor. I, I, I just can see her, I can see her competing with Eleanor. Well, what you've got to remember, Ali, is it's not all about the score. No, it's not, but, but I'm a bit disappointed. <laughs> Does she have that certain something, that lasting legacy, the great achievement, star quality that we call... Rex Factor! Do you want to make an argument against? Not really. <laughs> She's a shoe, isn't she? She's access all areas. Yeah, I mean, the, the only thing against her is just the fact that she ultimately doesn't win against Henry. Um, I don't think it, she loses, though. She fights right to the end and she gets her head. Um, yeah, and I think the negatives from that, you've got to pin on Henry rather than her. Yeah, she's she's one of the remarkable names in English history generally, but certainly in terms of the Queen's and uh, Prince Consort's. And much maligned or, uh, or or done no service by history. Because I think people often tend to view her from the prison of Anne Boleyn, like in the Tudors, and um, there's an old film from the 1930s which just does the six wives but literally skips her out, saying <laughs> she's pious and dull, so we won't do her. I mean, that's what I thought. Mm. I thought I wouldn't enjoy her at all. Because that first 20 years just gets ignored for Henry. Yeah, and actually, you've got and like it's the thing you always say about this series about how you always imagined like English history. It's a king and a queen on a throne and crown next yeah. to each other. King goes off to war, the queen's in charge. Yeah, I think those first twenty years that that's kind of it. And it's perfect. Is, and you've got it? the pageantry, the medieval pageantry, yeah. but with the bling of the sixteenth century. Yeah. You've got tournaments where every other month she's regent, defeats the Scots, he has a victory in France. She is the daughter of another king and queen. That makes sense. Yeah. You know, that fits the narrative. It's Yeah, that first 20 years, or at least first 15 years, when it's really going well, you think it's the bit no one looks at for Henry, and yet that's in some ways the best bit. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's always surprising to everyone, mm. that there is that period of his life where he's not just a total uh, <laughs> looney tune. Yeah. <laughs> Or, rather, how condensed the, the period of that everyone knows is. Yeah. I thought she was quite dull and a bit moany, which is Henry <laughs> winning the PR campaign. But, <laughs> G-Man, thank you for putting me right. But it's a big fat yes. 
So it's a yes from you, and it is a yes from me. Kathleen of Aragon has got the rags factor. Well done to uh, Catherine of Aragon. I hope she can sleep a little bit more soundly now. At Peterborough. At Peterborough. Oh, yeah, Peterborough. To our pilgrimage. Catherine of Aragon is buried in Peterborough. Yes. Blows my mind, Frank. Correspondence Corner. So that was Catherine of Aragon. Let us know what you thought about her. We'll do a write-a-reply episode for the Six Wives um, at the end of this little mini-series. But equally, we also enjoy getting your messages however many years later uh, you may be listening. Mm. Uh, find us on Twitter and Instagram at RexFactorPod. Like the RexFactorPodcast Facebook page. Email RexFactorPodcast.hotmail.com. And remember to send in your hashtag consort cards for an episode image for Catherine. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use. Or you can donate monthly, join the Privy Council, and get over 150 bonus episodes at patreon.com forward slash RexFactor. And Discord. We have a Discord chat, that's one of your benefits. Uh, and we have some new Privy Councillors. Welcome to the fold. Cheryl Warren, Alexis Mayer, Mary Moran, Courtney Ware, Louise Polk, Tom Sharp, Nicole Cook, David Van Rijk, Penny Tangy, Annika D'Souza, Simon Charles Cleal, Joseph Farger, Jason Williams, Steve Hook, Helen Cutler, Sean Brown, Lingo Filia, Jennifer Matthews, Isatu, Cindy Harris, Nikki Poulton, Emily Shonut. Paul Stukenholz, Tommy Ross, and Tina Fattori. Well, arise, put up a pew, come and say hello in Discord, and let's get jocking. What's that from? I don't know. <laughs> I worry it's Steve Wright in the afternoon. So that's all from us and Catherine Aragon, and from one huge figure to another, as our focus will now shift to Anne Boleyn, who, like Catherine, will be getting both a biography and review episode. So next time, Anne Boleyn, the biography. See you next time. Cheerio!